We're in Revelation 14 this morning. So before we get into the text, let's pray. I'm going to give a little bit of a background and then we'll dig into it. By the way, if you came for a seeker-sensitive softball message, you came to the wrong church today because Revelation 14 is no joke. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. You are a great and an awesome God. We ask, Lord, now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. I pray, Lord, if anybody here today doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, give us ears to hear. May man decrease that your spirit would increase. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, okay, so quickly, Revelation is not a hard book to understand. We know that in Revelation chapter one, we get an outline, things which were, things which are, and things which are to come. The things that already exist in heaven, we see in chapter one, Jesus in heaven. Then in chapter two, and by the way, in heaven, he is no longer a baby in a manger. He's no longer a savior on a cross. He's the almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. Amen? Chapter two and three, we see the things which are. This is called the what age? The church age. And we see in the church age, there's seven churches listed there, and the ministry to the churches Church is mentioned 19 times. When we get to chapter 4, verse 1, we see the things which are to come. Because at that point, John, who has been given this, being given this vision by God, says he's been snatched up, harpazo in Latin, it's rapturo, where we get the word for rapture. And we see him looking from a heavenly perspective. From chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book, we don't see the church mentioned anymore. And here at Calvary Chapel, we believe that we are pre-trib, pre-millennial. It's not essential for salvation. It's just right. So I want to encourage you guys. You'll all be really glad. If you're mid-trib, you'll be glad when you go with the rest of us before it starts. Amen? Now, in the last couple of chapters, we saw that 12, 13, and 14 are referred to kind of as the sign kind of the sign chapters, although we'll be getting more literal in today's text. And in chapter 12, we saw three main uh, players in this end times. We saw the woman. Who's the woman a picture of? And people say, why are you repetitive? This was two weeks ago. The woman is Israel. Who is the child? Okay. Who is the dragon? There you go. Then the last two, chapter, two messages we saw in chapter 13, we saw the Antichrist, right? The first beast. And the second beast, who is who? Somebody, Terry listened. Praise the Lord. Can I get into that? So we saw the, the Antichrist where they will have to take the mark of the beast to buy and sell. And people will be encouraged to submit to him by the false prophet, who is somebody who will point to the Antichrist. And we know that he'll be much more subtle than the Antichrist, and often the enemy is subtle. So now as we get to chapter 14, I just want to prepare you that there's a lot in this chapter. We're only going to get through the first 13 verses this morning. But here's some things we're going to see in the chapter. We're going to see the end of the Great Tribulation, or as we're getting close to it, uh, contains several major events in the Tribulation timeline. We're going to see the Lamb on Mount Zion. Mount Zion in the Bible is Jerusalem. 
will uh, see the proclamation of the everlasting gospel by angelic beings. That's pretty awesome. We're going to see the pronouncement of God's righteous judgment upon Babylon and all those who take the mark of the beast. We're going to see the praise praise for those who die in the Lord. Hey, the results are in. One out of every one person dies. Amen? We're all going to die, and we're all going to live forever somewhere. Amen? We're all gonna, we are all eternal beings. And I want to let you know right up front that this chapter is pretty heavy, but it's also light in the midst of darkness. We'll see a preview of Armageddon. And in the midst of blasphemy, chaos, and worshiping the Antichrist, we're going to see that God is greater. So the last two chapters were kind of dark, right? The dragon, the false prophet, the, you know, the Antichrist. And now as we come to chapter 14, we're kind of going to shine some light into this very dark time. So keep in mind, when we get to this place, we've already seen a third of the world's population die in a single day. A third of the waters are bitter. A fourth of the oceans are contaminated. We've seen that all the mountains have moved. So we've seen hailstones falling from the sky, insects coming up out of the ground and stinging people and they die. So it's a heavy duty time. And in the midst of all of that, because people will often ask me, well, why would God allow there to be a seven-year tribulation after he takes the church away? Why didn't he just bring judgment then? Because there's something else that he wants to do. And what is that? He wants to see people saved. And so during the seven-year great tribulation, there are going to be those who do, in the midst of it, preach the gospel. Even after the church is gone, we've already seen the two messengers, right? The two, as they stand and they proclaim the truth and fire comes out of their mouth and the whole thing. I believe that's Elijah and Moses, but it could be somebody else. And now in tonight's text, or tonight, this morning's text, grab your outline. We'll go through this quickly. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, I do observational outline, interpretational outlines, no, applicational outlines, right? Why do I do that? Because I want you to take something home with you that you can apply to your life after you leave. So I tell the message, light that shines in the darkness. So in this very dark time, there are going to be those who show up and bring light into it and are preaching the gospel in a world that has rejected Almighty God. And so we're going to see the four points. Number one, we're going to see those that are marked by God. We've talked about the 144,000. And let me just say this. You always, you should always take the book of Revelation literally unless you can't. So when the book of Revelation says that the 144,000 are 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, then I believe that's exactly who they are because that's what the Bible says. I don't think it's an allegory. I think people say, you, that's kind of crazy. There's no way they can get 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes and have it be that exact number. Our God said light is and light was. Can I get an amen to that? He created all things. Can he line up some people to be witnesses? Of course. So we're going to see those marked by God, those who stand for the Lord and for truth, who preach the truth with boldness and without fear and are focused on the eternal and not the temporal. Then we're going to see men and women use, that God uses in the midst of a dark world. And we're going to see how they describe these 144,000 and what makes them so usable by God. And it's not their, their perfection, but it's who they are in Christ. Then we're going to see heavenly messengers. So this, who is it that is God has called to share the gospel? Who? All of us. Go therefore into all the world and what? Okay, and he's saying that to believers. So that's us. Now, we're going to see three angels 
come down from heaven and preach the gospel. And then the third angel is also going to warn them of the righteous judgment that is coming for those that have rejected God. Now, if you're visiting and you said, I sure hope it's not a hellfire and brimstone message. Well, guess what? Hellfire and brimstone messages came from this chapter. And so it talks about hellfire and brimstone in this chapter. So this morning, we're going to have a hellfire and brimstone message because it's in the text. You know, you teach a text out of context, all you get left is a con. We teach the whole counsel of God. It's in here for a reason. Amen? And then finally, blessed are those who die in the Lord. You know, when, when my son Mark went to heaven 22 months ago, people say that's the worst possible thing that could happen to you. And certainly from a temporal perspective, that's absolutely true. But it's not even close to the worst thing that could possibly happen to me because I know that my son's in heaven. What would be a million times worse is if he did not know the Lord. Amen? And my burden for everyone here, I've been praying for this all week, that if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you're going to be warned about the righteous judgment that's in this chapter. And my prayer is not one person in this room will have to experience it because we will all have surrendered our lives to the Lord. Amen? So let's begin there in Revelation 14. We're going to look at lights that shine in the darkness, proclaiming the truth of the gospel and warning the lost of the coming judgment of God. So chapter 13, we left it. You got the antichrist and the false prophet. People are being threatened with their own death. They don't take the mark of the beast. And now we get to chapter 14 and it says this, then I looked, and this is John, okay, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, they boiled him oil and he didn't die, so they put him, put him on the island of Patmos, and it's there that the Lord is giving him this vision, and the Holy Spirit is using him to write this down. So John is saying, then I looked, and behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having the Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, who's the Lamb? Jesus. What did John the Baptist say at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry? Behold the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the what? Okay, so he is the sacrifice we've all been waiting for. So this lamb in this vision, standing on Mount Zion, Zion, excuse me, there's no doubt who this is. It's Jesus, amen? And he's standing in this vision that he's having on Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. And so this to me is a picture of what is going to take place at the second coming when Jesus is back. And notice who's going to be standing with him. It says there the 144,000. Now, some would disagree with me. Here's what I believe. I believe all 144,000 are going to survive the tribulation. They're going to come out the other side of it. I call them 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. Amen. They're all going to be sharing their faith. God's going to use them because the church is gone to preach the gospel with great boldness. And now in this vision, he sees this 144,000. See, in the previous chapters, we're talking about everybody being put to death. We're talking about if you don't have the mark of the beast, they're going to kill you. But then the very next chapter begins with the 144,000 standing in Jerusalem with the Lord. The vision John is seeing in the, is future events that will take place at the end of the great tribulation and again, beginning of the millennial reign. And uh, in, in history of when we look at end times, we know that 
when the church is raptured, we have a seven-year period, and at the end of that, we come back with the Lord, that's the second coming, and then we will rule and reign with him on the earth for a thousand years. And I'm looking forward to that. How about you? So Mount Zion is one of the hills that the city of Jerusalem sits, and Jesus will stand on Mount Zion, and again, Satan's attempts to take the throne, Satan's attempts to destroy even the witness of our Savior will go for nothing, and in the end, I've read the end of the book, and God wins, amen? So he's going to stand. The Bible tells us in Proverbs, or Psalm 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run into it, and they are safe. So then it says there at the end of that verse, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now Satan, all he ever does is he's a counterfeiter and a liar. Amen? So remember that when you tell a lie, you're being Satan-like. Who's the truth? So when you tell the truth, you're being Christ-like. Amen? So all sa- Satan can create nothing. All he can do is try and counterfeit what God has created. So I want you to see before the mark of the beast ever took place, we saw this in earlier chapters, that the believers were marked with the name of our heavenly father. They had a mark upon their foreheads of the name of our heavenly father. So what does Satan do with the antichrist? He tries to create a counterfeit, a a false savior, someone else we can try to follow after. Remember that antichrist means in place of Christ. He's not the opposite of Christ. He's someone trying to take the place of Christ. So the believers are aligned with the lamb. They're marked by God. And most of those uh, early, those believers that got saved in the tribulation, most of them do die for their faith. So then we see the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, since they stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb, it seems to show they will emerge victorious from the great tribulation. The beast of Revelation 13 certainly has not defeated them because they are still here. And here they are triumphant, worshiping and standing firm with Jesus. And the Bible says you're either for me or against me. If you're here this morning and if you don't know if you are a Christian, then you're not. Because if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, it's not a hope so, it's a no so. Amen? How many born again believers we have in the room this morning? Confess their, oh, there you go. Amen? If your hand's not up, we can fix that before you leave. Amen? So as born again believers, we are marked by God. Now, what is the mark that we have? How do we know that we're saved? When someone comes to me and says, well, pastor, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be. And what is the down payment on heaven according to Ephesians chapter one that seals us? What is it? It's the Holy Spirit. So they were marked with the name of the Father. We've been marked with the Holy Spirit who has come to live inside of us. And as born again believers, we we feel different about our sin. We're not sinless, but we should sin less. Amen. And what happens is now that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, he convicts us of our sin and he comforts us in our times of trials and troubles. So these 144,000, we've seen them back in Revelation chapter 7. They were identified as a group of Jewish believers, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they've been sealed and called and protected by God, and they have his name on their foreheads. Now, Revelation will answer two important questions raised by Revelation 13. So is the beast completely victorious over God's people? What's the answer? No. Most people who convert will die, but many will not. And we see here 
what happens to the beast and his followers, the rest of uh, Revelation 14 is going to answer that. Verse two, he says, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of a harpist playing their harps. Now in the Bible, we have seen the voice of many waters. Who does that always speaking of? Who is it? The voice sounds like thunder. Who's that? It's Almighty God. Remember Mount Sinai? What happened at Sinai? God spoke. And what did the people do? They were scared half to death. And they said, Moses, you just go talk to him. So this voice that's coming from heaven, that is speaking to them in the midst of the great tribulation, a time when they need to be encouraged and strengthened, a time when it looks like, from a world's perspective, like all hope is lost. But I want you to know the many waters, don't think of a fountain, think of Niagara Falls and the sound that it makes when you stand near it. And when our God speaks, everybody's going to hear it. Amen? The voice is also going to be like thunder. This is a voice of Almighty God raining down from heaven. So they're all standing there to God, together, Jesus with 144,000, and God the Father speaks from heaven. We also see, saw Jesus, God the Father speak from heaven when Jesus was baptized. You guys remember this? When Jesus was baptized, when he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And then God the Father opened up heaven and said, this is my what? And what? And who am I? I'm well pleased. So we've seen that God has spoke audibly from heaven and he does it here. And we see that even though Chapter 12 and 13 and the chapters before it seem so overwhelming that God is still in control, that our God is still faithful, and at the end of the book, our God wins. Amen? It doesn't record what God the Father says to the Lord and to the 144,000. Maybe, well done, thou good and faithful servants. Amen? Then they heard the sound of harps. Harpists playing harps. In Revelation 5, the elders around the throne in heaven have harps. And the context is that music to accompany the heavenly worship coming from the 144,000. Here's what I love. They're standing in Jerusalem, but their worship is being accompanied in heaven. Amen? So guys, when we worship, we join that heavenly choir. One of the many reasons I have a lot of favorite worship songs, but my absolute favorite worship song is a Revelation song. And it's a song that comes from the book of Revelation. And it talks about the one who was and is and is to come. And they says that they are around the throne singing it. So when we're singing it, we're singing with them what they're singing in heaven. And that gives me Jesus bumps. Can I get an amen to that? It's good stuff. And so as believers, as we stand with the Lord, we should also have an incredible heart to worship him. Is he worthy to be worshiped? He's so worthy to be worshiped. And you know what? I think that a, a, a good sign of where we are spiritually is how much we love to worship the Lord. Have you ever taken the time to really just sit back and think what your life would be like without him? Have you ever taken the time to, what would my family look like? What would my life look like? Would I even be alive anymore? And I think sometimes we need to just think about what our life could have been like had we not been redeemed and chosen, adopted, saved, forgiven, born again. And it ought to drive us to a place of worship. Notice what it says in verse 3. So they sang, 
They sang it as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. See, the angels in heaven will never sing the song of the redeemed because the angels in heaven didn't have to be redeemed. They didn't have to be forgiven because they were already in heaven. And do you know that there is a, the Bible talks about the song of the redeemed, those of us who've been born again, and we worship in a different way. They worship because they can see him face to face. And we worship because he has forgiven us and we have the promise of eternal life. They sang the new song before the four living creatures. All of heaven hears them when they worship. And guys, we too sing to the same audience. Our, fir- our, our feet are firmly planted here, yet our praise rises up into the presence of Almighty God, and we join the heavenly choir. While in heaven we'll worship the Lord forever, there is a heart of worship that comes from the redeemed, again, that is different than the angels. The song of the redeemed can only be learned on earth. You know, the Bible tells us that the angels watch us and we teach them things by how we respond. Now, one angel can wipe out 400,000 men. It's in the Bible. But at the same time, there are things that we have gone through that the angels will never experience. The worship of the 144,000, no doubt, at least in part, comes from a heart of praise and thanksgiving of God redeeming them from their sin and protecting them from their enemy. And while worship is corporate with all believers, there is worship that comes from the heart of an individual who's in awe of God and thankful for what he has done to save us. My greatest times of worship are when I'm in my car by myself. And I'm driving along, and I, most of you know, until three months ago, I had a full-time job. I drove about 50,000 miles a year for work. And when I would drive between appointments, that was time to either listen to messages or just to worship. And I did, and ask my wife, you'll hear it 10 blocks away. So I love to worship. I love to sing out loud. And, and the reason that I love to worship him is I am so thankful for all he's done for me. And you know what? As believers, we should all have a heart to worship. Amen? It is good to know that not only corporate worship, but our personal intimate worship reaches the throne of God. To me, the most intimate worship I have, again, is when I'm alone. While our feet are still firmly planted here, we may join that heavenly choir. So point number one, who shines the light? Those who are marked by God. They, they, the 144,000, they're preaching the truth with boldness. They're sharing the gospel. They're letting people know that Jesus is the Messiah they've all been waiting for. They have no fear of man, and the reason that they don't, we'll see in the next few verses, is because they know what eternity holds. You know why people are afraid? Because they don't have the promise of eternal life, amen? And if you don't have the promise of eternal life, you should be afraid. But if you know the Lord, we have nothing to fear. Point number two, men and women God uses in the midst of a dark world. Now, we're going to see some attributes of these 144,000. They're not all directly applicable, but they do have applications to us. Notice what it says there in verse 4. It says, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, what's interesting is there's a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses that come to your door, and they're trying to become one of the 144,000. They're trying to earn it. And it always cracks me up because they're usually like older ladies. And I'll ask them, do you have children? And they'll say, yes. Then you're out on the 144,000. 
Because the 144,000 are going to be virgins, they're going to be undefiled, which means, and again, I think in ministry, uh, marriage is amazing, by the way, and I love being married. Uh, I love it. I love my wife so much, I can't hardly stand it. I'm so blessed. If you guys have seen my wife, you'll know that God has been gracious to me. It's beauty and the beast. It's just me and her. But the reality is that in the end times or in difficult times, Paul would even say, that there are sometimes it's not, it's better that you were not married. And when would that be better? In a time when you're going through a great tribulation and your life could be on the line. And instead of being worried about the safety of your spouse, if it's just you and you're serving the Lord, you can have your head down and be about it for the kingdom of God. And so God calls these 144,000, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, they, and now some people will say, well, that means they're pure. They're, no, I think it means they're virgins because that's what the Bible says. Amen? So they're pure. They're undefiled by the world. And again, they're sinners saved by grace like the rest of us. But I believe that by being unmarried and being virgins, they can focus completely and totally on what God has called them to do. Purity is an important trait to be used by God. So the first thing that we see is they're pure and undefiled. Secondly, we see that they're followers of Jesus. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? What it says in verse four, and for they are virgins and they are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. It's not that God isn't looking for leaders, but leaders that God is looking for are men and women who follow the true leader, Jesus Christ. The only way I can lead in my home is if I'm following Jesus, amen? And the same is true for all of us. Who are you following? And I don't really care how many followers you have. They all ought to be following Jesus. Amen? And so they follow the Lord. It literally means wherever the Lord goes, they follow. Too often, I get this question a lot as a pastor. I have a decision to make. I don't know what to do. And my response is often, where is the Lord leading? Amen? And until you know where he's leading, don't go anywhere else. The great multitude that gets saved during the great tribulation after the church is raptured and in the midst of God's righteous judgment, we'll all, you will see that there are those that make a decision that they're going to follow Jesus and they're not going to take the mark of the beast. They're going to follow the Lord even if it means I'm going to lose my life. Even if I'm going to be fed to lions or decapitated or whatever it may be, I'm going to follow the Lord because you can't threaten me with heaven. Amen? It's that eternal perspective that allows us to live in such a way. Notice it also says, again, as followers of Jesus. By the way, I want you to know that these 144,000, they get to save the same way that you and I do. A lot of people say, well, they're God's chosen people, so God just kind of like drafted them in. No. Everybody who gets saved is by faith in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It requires that we repent from our sin and we turn and surrender our lives to him. In the old covenant, they were looking forward to the Messiah. In the new covenant, we look back to the cross of Calvary. And even in the great tribulation, everybody is going to get saved the same way. And it's by following Jesus. Amen. And so on a time when very few are following, they will be following. And maybe on your school campus, or maybe where you work, or in your neighborhood, very few are following. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Amen? We follow the Lord, we don't follow the world, and Lord help us to be faithful. 
The old covenant again of faith was in the coming Messiah, pointing to Jesus, and we look back to the cross. And it says there are those who redeemed from among men, being first fruits of God and to the Lamb. So these guys are mighty evangelists, and they're first fruits of the faithful witness. Here's what this means these guys are sharing their faith. People are getting saved, and then those people are sharing their faith, and more people are getting saved. And so this 144,000 are not the only ones talking about Jesus, but they're the ones that God used to reach a world that is in the midst of great tribulation that's looking for hope. Most of them will surrender to the Antichrist because they'll seem to have answers. They'll get the mark of the beast because they're afraid they won't be able to buy and sell if they don't. And in the midst of that, there'll be those that stand up and preach the gospel with boldness. I'll tell you what, it's going to be worse in a tribulation than it is now, but this is the worst our country's been in my entire life. And I've never seen so many people just latching on to so much deception, walking away from the Lord, wanting nothing to do with God. And guys, you know what that means? That we're called to be salt and light. And God has you here for such a time as this. And God wants to use you for his kingdom and his glory. When you go to school, the first day it starts back, the Holy Spirit just entered the building. When you go to work, Holy Spirit just entered the building. When you're in the grocery store, the Holy Spirit just entered the building. God wants to use you for his kingdom and for his glory. Even though they will be used mightily and they're Jews, God's chosen people, they did not get saved because of a special dispensation. They too had to be followers of Jesus Christ. So they're living lives that are fruitful. What fruit are you bearing in your life? If we put you on trial for being a Christian and walked around and followed you for the next 10 days and videotaped everything you said and did, and we played your, your life in front of a, a jury, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Would they see you praying? Would they see you sharing your faith? Would they see you reading the Bible? Would they see, or would they see you doing things that are so contrary to the word of God? Notice also it says there in verse five, it says, and in their mouth was found no deceit. Our father our, is almighty God. His son is Jesus and Jesus is the truth. Amen. The Bible talks about in the mouth of Jesus, there was no deceit. You see that in Isaiah 53, nine, speaking of the one who is coming and you know what? As believers, we ought to be people who speak the truth and do it in love. Amen? The truth is not the opposite of love. Amen? People will say, well, if you love me, you'll just tell me what I want to hear. No, because I love you, I will tell you the truth. Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. That's why we must speak the truth in love. Amen? So we, do, does our country need truth right now? What's the answer? People don't believe in absolute truth, but we have the absolute truth, and the truth is Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. See, these are the ones that God is using. Now again, God doesn't use us because we're perfect. God uses us because he's perfect, and we're sinners saved by grace, amen? God uses us not because of us, but in spite of us. But these are attributes that are reflected in somebody, at least in the last days, being used by God. And then finally, it says of them, they're without fault. Look what it says at the end of verse 5. For they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, does that mean they're perfect? What do you think? Absolutely not. Are you without fault before God right now? What's the answer? Why? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Amen? 
because you're forgiven, because you've been redeemed. And so these are the people that God uses in the midst of a lost and a dark world. There are people that are pure and undefiled. They, they have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They live holy and set apart lives. They're not sinless, but they sin less. Secondly, they're followers of Jesus. They, they follow his lead. They pursue almighty God and he uses them for his glory. They live lives that are fruitful. Your life has an impact on eternity. Number four, you're honest. You know, I've heard people say, well, it's okay to lie to somebody if it helps them come to know Jesus. No. We don't need to lie. Amen? Tell the truth. And then finally, they are without fault. Not because they're good, but because they've been forgiven and redeemed by our Savior. So point number two there, men and women that God uses in the midst of a dark world, may we be those men and women. Amen? Amen? Okay. Point number three. Here we go. Heavenly messengers, angels proclaiming the truth. So the first angel, what does he do? Look what it says. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. How many of you knew that there was going to be an angel who flies in the sky and shares the gospel? Here it is. Now, to me, this is why I'm not God, but to me, wouldn't it just be easier if a whole bunch of angels just flew down here right now? I, I would love to see them at a gay pride parade. Wouldn't that be great? Just show up, breathing fire, yeah, amen, and just say, hey, Jesus is the way. Burn that thing down. Hey, get right or get left. Turn or burn, fry or, fly or fry, get right or get left, pray or stay. What do you want to do? Give your life to Jesus. He's the answer. And I think a lot of people would get saved, amen? But that's not how God does it. God chooses to use us, amen? God chooses to use us to be salt and light to a world that so desperately needs the Lord. And so this angel, notice what it says there, he's in mid, the midst of heaven. I looked that up in the original language, that literally means the apex of the sun. So the sun, when it's at its highest, the noonday sun, when it's at its brightest and it's most easily seen in the sky. So imagine an angel being over the people in the midst of the sky at the apex where everybody can see him and then he begins to proclaim the gospel. And again, I love this picture. And it says there, what does he, what does he say? He says, in verse six there, having the everlasting gospel. So the everlasting gospel, the gospel is never changes, amen? Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, it never runs out, amen? There is no expiration date on salvation. It is the everlasting gospel. It's always been God's plan to redeem people. So who does he preach to? He preaches the gospel. And who does he preach to? Look what it says there. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. The message is going to be preached to the whole world. You know, even in the midst of people taking the mark of the beast, even at a time when people are denying the Lord, he's going to bring that opportunity for people in a very, very dark time to know the Lord. He's going to bring the light of the truth of God's word into the darkness. The Bible tells us he desires that none should perish, no, not one. Those looking for hope and answers in the midst of the devastation of God's righteous judgment upon the earth. 
will be without excuse because the Lord is going to have this angel proclaim the truth to every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. Everyone's going to hear it, and they're all going to hear it, no doubt, in their own language. Matthew 24 says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So Matthew 24 says, the gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, this is part of fulfilling that, as this angel comes, and he begins to proclaim the gospel. I'm thinking, guys, that should be something where a lot of people get saved. Amen? So he preaches to every tongue, every tribe. What message will the angel preach? Watch what he preaches. Look at verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, fear God. And give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Okay, I'm going to break this down for you guys, what his message is, because this is a message I believe we should all teach. The first thing he says is what? What does he say? Fear God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We live in a time, do people fear God? What's the answer? They mock God. They curse God's name. I don't think that they are, there's a lack of love for God. There's a lack of fear of God. That's the greatest problem. See, if we don't fear God, we will mock him. We will we'll shake our fists at him. We'll live a life contrary to what his word demands. And so the fear of God is where it all begins. The word fear there is where we get the term for phobia. It means to be afraid, but also means to have reverence. Is it possible to love somebody and have a healthy fear of them at the same time? What's the answer? Absolutely. When I was a kid, my dad was a Marine. So when I grew up, stuff was done right or the belt was coming out the loops, amen? All the young people don't even know what I'm talking about, right? But literally, you'd hear that, oh, I'm in trouble. Oh, and then snap, snap, oh, here it comes. So I love my dad. My dad was the most godly man I've ever met. He was the example that I followed in my life, but I also had a healthy fear of my dad, a healthy reverence for my dad. And as believers, we love God, but we also should fear him, amen? We need to fear God because, again, he is a righteous judge who will punish the unrighteous, but we also fear him. We should have awe and reverence for our God. Now, look, everybody is going to bow to God. They're either going to bow to him now unto eternal life, or they're going to bow to him again after they faced eternal judgment. So he says, fear God. Then he says, give him the glory. Is our God worthy to be praised? What's the answer? So if you've truly given your life to the Lord, you want to praise him. You want to worship him. We want to give him all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. And one of the biggest things that we need to be careful of as believers is to touch not the glory. Amen? If God chooses to use you, don't ever let the praise be given to you that belongs to the Lord because without him, you can do nothing. Amen? So we give him, we fear God, we have reverence for God, and he's telling them, you need to fear Almighty God. You don't need to fear the Antichrist, because he's going to die. You don't need to fear the false prophet, even though they could put you to death. Don't fear the one that can kill you here on earth. Fear the one that can cast you into hell forever. And it says to have fear of God. Give him the glory, for the hour of judgment has come. Now, one of the things I say often, God suffers long, but he won't. He won't suffer always. And so finally, he comes to the point where he's done 
suffering, which I mean means enduring what mankind is doing, giving them more opportunities to be saved. But now we're coming down to the end where it's going to be too late. And he's exhorting them, this angel from the sky, telling them, fear God. Worship him. Judgment's coming. I'm thinking that would get my attention. How about you? And that's exactly what's going to take place. And again, there's a sense that we can all face the judgment of God at any time. And the foolish person ignores the fact that they could die at any moment. None of us don't know that we won't be standing before Almighty God today. Whether we're raptured as a church or whether we get in a car accident or have a heart attack on the way home. Guys, are you ready to stand before Almighty God? Are you prepared for that moment? I know that all of us will be in awe and reverence, will be on our face before him, but I'm very, very thankful that I know, not because I'm good, but because he's good and because of his promises, that when I stand before him, he's going he's to invite me into heaven Well, I will be with him forever. In 2009, I had a major health issue that put me in a coma, and I was in the hospital for almost a year. And when I was in the back of the hospital, the ambulance drivers were panicking. That's not good, by the way. You don't like that. So you're driving along, and they're like putting nitroglycerin down my throat, and they're saying, we don't think he's going to make it to the hospital. Well, oddly enough, I had just taught Revelation 1 that morning. And Revelation 1 talks about the picture of Jesus in heaven. And I've never been so glad that when I was in the back of that ambulance, having knowing what Jesus is going to look like and knowing that if I draw my last breath, I'm going to be in his presence forevermore. Guys, we need to fear God, have reverence for God. We need to praise God, but we need to know God so we don't have to fear death. Amen? Judgment is coming. Where are you going to be on judgment day? Notice it says, judgment has come and worship him. For he made the heaven and the earth. The word worship there is proskuneho. It means to kiss the hand towards one, to fall upon your knees and touch the ground with your forehead as an expression of profound reverence. Do you have that kind of reverence for God where you just surrender to him fully? When was the last time you got on your face to pray or to worship? And that's what it means here, to worship him, to surrender your life. Now remember, he's talking to many who are debating taking the mark of the beast. He's talking to many who are scared to death they're going to lose their life if they don't take the mark of the beast. And he's letting them know, don't fear man, fear God and worship him because he alone is worthy to be worshiped. Again, you can love and have fear at the same time. It's a sincere, deep love, but one that remembers who you are loving, and that's Almighty God. It says in Psalm 2, Now therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. What are you putting your trust in right now? Is it your bank account? Is it your job? Is it your, your family? Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Some of those things are fine, but our hope and our trust should be in the Lord and in no one else. And then it says at the end of that verse, worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. Our God is the creator, amen? So I actually had a discussion with somebody online yesterday who pinged me or something and said, oh, so you're a Christian. You don't believe in the Big Bang Theory. I said, well, yeah, actually I do. God said it, bang, it happened. Can I get an amen to that? 
But we had this discussion, and he said, you're so foolish, and you're, you, can't, you, you, know, you actually stand up in front of people and teach, teach them. You're an idiot. You know? And I said, well, the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. That sounds like you, not me. But I asked him about the second law of thermodynamics and the law of biogenesis and where are all the transitional forms. And all of a sudden, he got busy and had to leave. But here's the point. <laughs> Guys, we are not random chance. It did not go from the goo to the zoo to you, amen? God, in his infinite wisdom, created you in his image, and he loves you so much, he'd rather die than live without you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every cell in your body. He knows every thought you've ever had, every trial you've ever been through. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. No one will ever snatch you out of his hand. He's adopted you into his family. He's written your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. He's the creator of all things. He created you. He loves you. He died for you. And when you close your eyes on earth, you're going to open them up in heaven with the creator of all things. Amen? That's the God that we serve. So the first angel lets them know, hey, fear God. Worship him. He's the creator of all things. Now watch verse 7 and 8. It says there, or verse 8, excuse me. It says there, and another angel follows saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Does that sound like a good city? Okay, Babylon is an actual city in the Bible. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Remember the Jews at one point were taken off into captivity in Babylon, right? They were in captivity for 70 years, including a young man by the name of Daniel, right? And when we get done with Revelation, we're going to go to Daniel because it ties into Revelation, but what we're seeing here is Babylon has fallen, and Babylon is also a symbol of the world, of the unsaved world, of the ungodly world. And at this point, the world is going to be putting its faith in the Antichrist. The world is going to be worshiping uh, Satan through the Antichrist. They're going to be listening to the false prophet. They're going to have, it's going to be their political system and their economic system, the way, the way they buy and sell with the mark of the beast, it's all going to be wrapped up in the things of this world, and he lets them know that worldly system is done. It's all going to fall apart. Now, last week we saw, we saw the false prophet pointing people to the Antichrist who was a politician. We have a lot of people today that are Christians that listen to men pointing us to politicians as the answer. Now, we should vote godly, but the answer is not who's in the White House, it's who's on the throne of God, amen? We don't put our faith in men, we put our faith in God. Yes, we should vote. We should vote biblically. We should do all of those things. But guys, men will fail you. I don't care who we put in the White House, he's gonna be flawed. She's gonna be flawed, whoever it is, amen? But our God is not flawed. Our God is holy and perfect and righteous and just, and we put our faith in him, and in him alone. Babylon has fallen. He says, you've made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Again, the word fallen there is to descend from a higher place to a lower place. Babylon happens to be at the end of the tribulation. When we get to chapter 17 and 18, we'll talk a lot more about Babylon. And the angel is warning the people on earth that their system is about to collapse. And they've been, you know, they're getting drunk in the wrath of their fornication. Again, we saw the opposite in the 144,000. There were men undefiled. But again, so much of the world is just wrapped up 
in sin and fornication. Then notice what it says there in verse 10, verse 9, excuse me. Then the third angel followed them. Now get ready, guys. You ready? This is not Pastor Dave's opinion. We teach the Bible around here. Amen? So make sure you have it in your hand because I'm not making this up. You ready? Here we go. Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, who's that? That's the Antichrist. Dragon of Satan, the beast, and his image, and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of who? Which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with what? And what? In the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. Boy, is that a heavy message for the people trying to decide whether they want to take the mark of the beast or not? We need to think, we need to be eternally minded. Amen? You know who's tempted to take the mark of the beast? The one who's only worried about buying groceries this afternoon and knowing if they don't have the mark, they might not be able to buy groceries. So they will satisfy the temporal and forfeit the eternal. And too often that's what we do when we choose to sin. The choices that we make, rather than give our life to the Lord, we choose to satisfy what our flesh wants with no thought how it's going to impact our eternity. Guys, we should always live every day, every time we're making a decision, when we're being tempted, may we live with eternity in mind. Amen? So he's warning them. Let's go back there again at verse 9 where he says, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand. So we've talked about the fact that Satan is a counterfeiter. The people of God had a mark of God. And now you need to take a mark of the beast if you want to buy and sell and survive in the world and not have to, you know, be fired from your job or be told you can't go to the grocery store or told that you can't worship, right? So they're going to bring down an edict and if you don't follow it, you could lose your life over it. And he's, they're being told, but don't fall for the trap. Don't listen to the world. Be faithful to the Lord. Now, I want to say this. You won't accidentally take the mark of the beast. Okay? You won't apply for a new card at Alpha Beta and then they give you a mark of the beast. That's not going to happen. You know, people will call me and go, well, I got this new thing at, at, at uh, my bank and it's, a, it's got a chip in it. Is that the mark of the beast? No. Okay, it's not. The mark of the beast is going to be a conscious decision that you are going to take this and honor the one who, who's, who's the figure, the Antichrist. It's an act of worship. Now, what I thought about back in the first century church, a lot of Christians were fed to lions because they would not do this simple thing. Here's what it was they were asked to come in and take a piece of, once a year, get a little bit of incense, burn it on an open flame and say, Caesar is Lord. And most people would just come in and do it. Took 10 seconds, Caesar is Lord, go live my life. But the people that knew the Lord refused to do it. I'm not doing that. Now they could have done it and still worship the Lord, but they said, there's no way I'm ever gonna say anybody is Lord but the Lord, so I'm not doing it. And do you know for not burning that pinch of incense, many of them were fed to lions. 
or they were burned at the stake, but they wouldn't do it anyway because they knew it was contrary to what God commanded. And the same will be true for those who take the mark of the beast. They will know I'm about to line myself up with somebody who mocks God. I'm lining myself up with the government. I'm trusting in this political leader and I'm doing so as a direct contradiction to surrendering my life to the true and the living God. Verse 10 again, he says, he shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of indignation. Again, God doesn't suffer, God suffers long, but he won't suffer always. Here's where he finally says, that's it. He says he pours out his wrath at full strength. Can you imagine what the full strength of God's wrath looks like or what it feels like? The cup of wrath of God will be poured out upon all who align with the beast and reject Almighty God after repeated opportunities to be saved. Again, everybody who spends eternity in hell will have had to reject Christ and run over the cross of Calvary here. And so when people will stand before the Lord, I don't know if he will show a video or what, but I think that he's going to let show people how many opportunities they had to be saved. And in this case, the cup of wrath. Now, where else do we see a cup of wrath in the Bible? What does it make you think of? Gethsemane. The garden. Remember when Jesus was about to be, go to the cross? What did he say? Let this cup, what? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What he's saying is, I do not want to have to endure the wrath of the Father upon the sins of mankind. If there's another way, can we do it the other way? And then he takes the cup of wrath. So each one of us has a cup of wrath that we deserve. But when Jesus went to the cross, he took our punishment upon himself. He drank that cup of wrath for us so we don't have to. He suffered as if he lived your life so you could be rewarded as if you lived his. That's the God that we serve. But here in these verses, we're gonna see those who've rejected what Jesus did, the cup that he drank for us, and they're gonna take the cup for themselves because they reject the Lord, they've taken the mark of the beast, and now they are gonna face the righteous judgment of God. He drank our cups so we wouldn't have to. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. Amen? Taking the mark of the beast is a temporary escape that brings about eternal consequences. May we not fall into the trap. Righteous judgment of God of unrepentant sin and the openly rebellion, you're rejecting salvation and receiving eternal judgment. Notice again, I already read it, but notice he says here, he himself shall also drink of the wine. Then he says, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the lamb, and the smoke of the torment ascends forever and ever. And they shall have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, some people make fun of hell. And they'll say things like, well, yeah, if, you're, if, if the God who does that doesn't believe in that is in heaven. I want to just go to hell. I'll be partying with all my friends. Nobody's partying. Does it sound like a party to you that you'd want to be invited to? There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is eternal torment. Brimstone. I smelled it. It smells like sulfur. So you're on fire. It's pitch black. There's no light. You're all on your own in a sense. The presence of God is there in the sense of overseeing the righteous judgment. And there's no relief. There's no break and it never ends. Now people read this and they say, what kind, I, I get this a lot. What kind of God would send people to hell? That just doesn't seem right. 
Well, he's a righteous God, that's for sure. But let me, I always ask him the same question. Well, let me ask you a question. What would a loving God do? What would a loving God do if people were going to hell and he didn't want him to go there? What would a loving God do? And they'd say, well, get rid of hell. Well, he can't do that. Hell exists because some are going to reject him. Here's what he would do. He would send someone to suffer and die so that you could be forgiven and not have to go there. Amen? He would provide a way for you not to have to go there. He desires that none should perish, no, not one. Hell was created for Satan and the demons, not for us. We have chosen, mankind has chosen to follow them and reject him. And God cannot have and will not have sin in his presence. Read Ebirth Part 2. Amen? The presence of the holy angels. Why the love of God will not be present in hell. The holy angels will be witnesses that the punishment takes place. Guys, here's another thing to think about. I know we're done, but... Can you imagine, just, have you ever thought about what hell would be like for a minute and a half? Have you ever contemplated that? We were witnessing these guys in line at a movie theater back in the 90s. And this guy was with me named Scott. He was this big dude at our church. And he was kind of radical. And this one guy had this like Satan shirt on and, ah, and he was mocking us and everything. So Scott, the guy's going, I'm, I can't wait to go to hell. I'm a party with all my friends. It's going to be great. So Scott pulls out a lighter, grabbed the guy's hand, and started lighting his palm on fire. He was holding it under there, and the kid started screaming, and he kept holding it. I'm like, Scott, we're going to jail. But he was doing this. And the kid finally, and he's like, oh, and he's wanting vast. Anybody got anything to put on this? He goes, wait a minute. I thought you said you wanted to be in hell forever, bro. That was five seconds of a, of a big lighter. And you're gonna sp- you want to spend eternity in hell. Guys, we should, now look. People say, well, don't talk about hell. That's uncomfortable. I would rather have you be uncomfortable hearing how to escape it than ignore it and have you spend eternity there. Amen? Lord, help us. It literally says that they will be there until all the ages. The time in hell will never run out. Last point, blessed are those who die in the Lord. So we see what happens if you reject the Lord. You spend eternity separated from God. And again, Weeping and gnashing of teeth, the torment never ends. Then it says this, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say to me, this is John, right? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Here's the good news. If you know the Lord, you don't ever have to worry about hell. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes, hell is a real place. Yes, people will go there and suffer for all eternity. But everyone who goes there will have to reject the cross of Christ to get there. But if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, we have the promise of heaven. And for Christians, we die well. Because we don't die, we just move to a much better neighborhood. We close our eyes on earth, we open them up in glory. And heaven is better, and I can't wait to get there. How about you? That's the God that we serve got new people here going today going, I picked this church out of all the churches I could have come to today. Notice the patience of the saints. Let me end with this. The word there is hupomone. You've heard me talk about this. It's to stand under the weight. See, when things get tough in this world and the burden starts to get heavy, just remember that our God will never leave you nor forsake you. And know that in the midst of that time where you stand underneath it, that God will deliver you from it. And that Remember what the ultimate goal is, and it's heaven. 
Yes, sometimes in this earth, in this world, we'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for he has overcome the world. There are things that will happen in this life that seem overwhelming, but nothing is overwhelming compared to eternity separated from Almighty God with weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell. Amen? And he's saying the patience of the saints is, yes, I'm going through a tough time, but my God is faithful, and I can rest in him, and I will trust in him. So in closing, lights that shine in the darkness. We all survived, amen? Lights that shine in the darkness. Those that are marked by God. Those who stand for the Lord and for the truth. And we saw some attributes there in verses 4 and 5. We saw the heavenly messengers preaching to every tongue and tribe and nation. They're going to let them know that the world system is going to fall apart. And then finally, those who worship the beast will spend eternity separated from God. And then at the end, we see there, those who've given their life to the Lord need not fear death because we have the promise of eternal life in him. Amen? Worship team will come on up. Let me just say this. There's no way I can end that message and not do this. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. My desire, God's desire more importantly, is that none of us would spend eternity separated from Almighty God, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He went to the cross because he loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you. And so if you've never fully surrendered your life to the Lord, if you're not born again, born not just from the flesh, but born from above, the Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. So how do we confess him? We're living a life contrary to his word. We're walking our own way. And the word tells us that we need to repent. The word repent means to change your mind, to change your heart, to turn around. I've been living for myself and my flesh and the world. And I recognize I need to get right with God. He created me. He loves me. And so the word repent means to turn around. And now you take yourself off the throne. You put Jesus Christ there. You surrender your life to him. You ask him not just to be your savior, but the Lord of your life. And if you do that and you mean it in sincerity of heart, if you truly believed in him, if you confess it with your mouth, you will be saved. And when you're saved, it means that you're born again, that you're going to heaven. Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You have the promise of eternal life. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the God that we serve. Amen. Heavenly Father, if there's anybody here, I pray that today would be the day of salvation that they would openly confess you, that they can leave here today with the assurance of heaven. If you're here this morning, you've never given your life to the Lord. Maybe you did it a long time ago, but your life never changed and you wanna surrender your life to him. You wanna know that you have the promise of eternal life. I want you to just raise your hand right where you are so I can pray with you, anybody at all. Don't leave here without him. He's a faithful God, a loving God, a merciful God. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for the promise of heaven. And Lord, I pray that every believer here, every believer this side of heaven, that we will be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell. May we be unashamed of the gospel. May we love people the way you love them. May we point them to the truth, to our Lord, our God, our Savior, and our King. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said...